0: Chapter 5 of Anglo American Memories by George Washburn Smalley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The American Defoe, Richard Henry Dana, Jr richard henry dana jr to whose intervention in the burns case we owe it that judge loring was compelled to grant burns something in the nature of a trial was a man whom massachusetts may well be content to remember as one of her representatives for all time by descent and in himself he was a chosen son of that chosen people his father richard henry his grandfather francis his great-grandfather richard were all jurists all patriots all men of letters take one step more and you come to daniel then to richard again who if not quite a voyager to new england in the mayflower is heard of as a resident in cambridge in 1640. Six danas nay five since our dana survived his father but three years span two centuries and a half from father to son as they took their march down these eventful years an unbroken line a race of gentlemen it used to be made a reproach to the dana of whom i write that he was a gentleman beyond doubt he deserved the reproach when a candidate for congress in eighteen sixty eight in the essex district against ben butler that eminent warrior called him a kid gloved aristocrat not even gloved has my hand ever touched his answered dana in the heat of a red-hot campaign butler's rancour lasted to the end as we shall see this of course is no biography of dana i am writing of what i saw and heard or not much more i dealt with the burns case as a record of personal impressions but let me quote as an example of dana's method of statement his account of Burns' arrest he said to judge loring burns was arrested suddenly on a false pretense coming home at nightfall from his day's work and hurried into custody among strange men in a strange place and suddenly whether claimed rightfully or claimed wrongfully he saw he was claimed as a slave and his condition burst upon him in a flood of terror this was at night you saw him sir the next day and you remember the state he was then in you remember his stupefied and terrified condition you remember his hesitation his timid glance about the room even when looking in the mild face of justice how little your kind words reassured him that is the same hand which wrote two years before the mass the touch of defoe with defoe's direct simplicity of method and power of getting the effect he wanted by the simplest means the last word in art in all arts dana was incapable of rhetorical extravagance or of insincerity of any kind his two years before the mast is as much a classic in england as at home one proof of it is the number of pirated editions before there was an international copyright law he wrote to me once i hear there is a cheap english edition of the book which has had because of its cheapness a great circulation published i think in hull could you send me a copy as a curiosity i sent it a little fat volume with a red cloth cover much gilt very closely printed and sold at a shilling long before the days of cheap books it had sold by scores of thousands it is a book always in print in one edition or another copyright profited dana no more in america than in england or not for a long time bryant to whom dana's father sent the manuscript hawked it about from one publisher to another in vain till finally he sold it outright to harper's for two hundred and fifty dollars copyright and all in my copy with the imprint of james r osgood and Company, boston is a preface dated eighteen sixty nine in which dana says after twenty-eight years the copyright of this book has reverted to me and so he presents the first author's edition to the public my copy was a gift from dana it is among the treasures i possess and care for most with this inscription in dana's clear quiet handwriting my dear smally will you accept this volume from me and believe me ever truly yours richard h dana jr boston february seventeenth eighteen seventy six My real acquaintance with Dana had begun ten years before, when, in June or July 1866, we crossed the Atlantic together in what was then the crack ship of the Cunard line, the China, the first screw that carried the Cunard flag, capable of fourteen knots. The Cunarders then sailed from Boston, touched at Halifax, and thence steamed to Queenstown direct, and so on to Liverpool." halifax was an experience it took us with all the cunard seamanship and there was none better four hours to get alongside the pier the currents running i know not how many miles an hour the china belonged to the old school of all new schools the cunard people now foremost in everything had at that time an abhorrence the saloon aft and tapering to a point racks over the table filled with table-glass long benches for seats cabins crowded and dimly lighted with one smoking and smelling oil lamp in a triangular glass case between two cabins sanitary arrangements unspeakable i on my first atlantic voyage thought it all the height of luxury and so it was for that time the modern comforts and splendors of sea life date from eighteen eighty nine with the white star teutonic launched in that year first of the floating palaces the china made her way from halifax to queenstown through a continuous fog at undiminished speed the captain for an exception among the cunard captains of those days regarded a passenger as a human being and not merely as a parcel to be safely carried from port to port and dumped safely on the wharf intermediate sufferings of no account he would answer a question i asked him with the audacity of a novice whether it was safe to steam day and night through a fog at full speed safe good god no Then why do you do it? Why? I will tell you why. First, we have got to get to Queenstown and Liverpool. Second, fogs don't last forever, and the faster we go, the sooner we shall get out of this one. And third, if there's a collision, the vessel going at the greatest speed has the best chance. So antedating by many years the famous saying of another Cunard captain summoned to the bridge when a collision seemed imminent, finding the engines reversed, and instantly ordering full speed ahead, remarking to the first officer who had reversed the engines, if there's any running down to be done on this voyage, I propose to do it. But there was none. When I told Dana of my talk with the China's captain, that experienced seaman and author of the seaman's manual observed, I like a captain to have the courage of his opinions, but not to tell his passengers. Keep it to yourself." and i have kept it for forty years the captain and ship are gone to davy jones locker nothing happened but something very nearly happened there had been no chance of an observation since leaving halifax and we made the irish coast rather suddenly some miles further north than we expected came near enough to hear the breakers and swung to the south in safety his mind full of sea lore and of sea romance as well dana was the most delightful of companions on shipboard beneath an exterior which people thought cold he had a great kindliness of nature he made no professions his acts spoke for him he gave freely of the riches of his mind he knew england and the ways of the english and was full of illustrative stories among them was one of his first visit to the house of commons i heard that night one of the best speeches to which i ever listened fluent rich in facts sound in argument well phrased and well delivered i said to myself that man must carry the house with him when he sat down a member rose on the opposite side and spoke for perhaps ten minutes he stumbled along hesitated grew confused his sentences without beginning or end nothing but a knowledge of the subject and a great sincerity to recommend him but it was perfectly evident that the first speech had no weight with the house and that the second convinced everybody the first speaker was whiteside a brilliant irishman and solicitor general the second a county member whose name i never knew The house thought Whiteside merely an advocate, and his speech forensic. His opponent was a man whom everybody trusted. It was character that carried the day, and you will find it generally does with the English. Dana brought to the study of the law a philosophic mind, and to the trial of causes, in court, a power of lucid exposition, invaluable alike, with the bench and with a jury. The law was to him a body of symmetrical doctrine he referred everything to principles the only real foundation for anything he stood very high at the bar for he had learning and would take immense pains and when he brought a case into court it was a work of art moreover he brought a conscience with it and he was one of the lawyers none too numerous to whom even chief justice shaw listened out of many anecdotes i have heard from him i will choose one he had defended in the united states circuit court a man indicted for aiding in the escape of a fugitive slave the case against him said dana was perfectly clear there was really no defense he had beyond a doubt committed the crime of helping rescue a man from slavery i looked for a conviction as a matter of course but after the judge had charged the jury hour after hour went by and still they stayed out the judge sent for them and asked if they required any further guidance in law or in fact the foreman said no but they could not agree and finally were discharged some years later said dana as i stood on the steps of the parker house a man came up to me and said you don't remember me mr dana i did not and he went on well mr dana i expect you remember trying that case where a man named tucker was indicted for aiding and abetting in the escape of a fugitive slave i was on the jury in that case at this i instantly recalled the facts and said since you were on that jury i wish you would tell me what i've always wanted to know why they disagreed well mr dana i don't mind telling you We stood eleven to one for conviction, and that one obstinate man wouldn't budge. Perhaps, you remember, it was proved on the trial that the Negro was got away from Boston, taken to Concord, New Hampshire, and there was handed over to a man who drove him in a sleigh across the border into Canada. Oh, yes, I remember that. Well, Mr. Dana, I was the man who drove him in the sleigh across the border into Canada." i knew something of the preposterous charge against dana that in editing wheaton's international law he had appropriated the labors of a dull predecessor mr william beach lawrence when president grant nominated dana minister to england in succession to that general schenck who is still quoted as an authority on poker the lawrence charge was pressed before the senate committee on foreign relations It was an ex parte hearing, and Dana had no opportunity to defend himself. Whether that or the unsleeping malignity of General Butler did him the more harm, I know not, but President Grant, as his honourable habit was, stood by his nominee, and the Senate rejected Dana by thirty-one votes to seventeen. The matter naturally attracted attention in England, and there were comments none too just i wrote a letter to the times of which mr delane was then editor a long letter something over a column but delane published it next morning in his best type first striking out a number of censorious sentences about butler and zach chandler and other eminent persons who had engineered dana's defeat in my wish to do justice to dana and upon his enemies i had not remembered that i was writing in an english newspaper and had no business to be rebuking americans to an english audience when i read my letter and noted delane's excisions i saw how wrong i had been and i wrote to delane to thank him for suppressing all those ferocities there came in reply such a note as only delane would have written it is the first time anybody ever thanked me for using a blue pencil on a correspondence letter thank you this was in eighteen seventy six Dana's letter to me on my letter about him was characteristic i think i might print it but it is with other papers in new york he was grateful and kindly but also critical he was always capable of looking at his own case as if it were a third person's his mind detached from everything that was personal to him he thought the legal points might have been pressed but the public especially the english public will not have too much law i suppose the beach lawrence suit and the minister to england business troubled dana more than anything else in his career he ought of course to have been minister He would have been such a minister as Charles Francis Adams was, or as Phelps was, two of the American ministers whom the English liked best. Out of the half dozen who have held in this country a preeminent position among ministers and ambassadors, including the present ambassador and his two immediate predecessors, Hay and Schott, that brilliant list ought to have been enriched with Dana's name, but it was not to be dana came aboard again in eighteen seventy eight and i saw him once more he spent his time chiefly in paris and rome and died in rome january seventh eighteen eighty two he lies near keats and shelley in the protestant cemetery at port pia and there is a monument in boston he is remembered whether he is remembered elsewhere i have no means of knowing but we cannot in whatever part of america we cannot afford to forget a man who had all the american virtues in one of the heroic ages of america chapter five